Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work conducted via Skype so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash suite-212. Today, I'm talking to Abbas Sahedi, a London-based artist known for his interdisciplinary blend of social practice, performance, installation, moving image, institution building and writing. His practice emerged out of working with migrant and marginalised communities in the UK to explore the concept of neo-diaspora, and the ways in which personal and collective histories interweave. His work has been exhibited at group shows in London, Wolverhampton and the Venice Biennale, and his first solo exhibition, How to Make a How from a Why, had just started at the South London Gallery when the COVID-19 crisis hit. In 2015, he performed poetry at the Bradford Literature Festival and was a feature performer at the Hammer and Tongue Finals in Camden. So Abbas, welcome to Sweet 212. Hi, Julia. Thank you for having me. I've known your work for a few years now, and I was looking forward to seeing your show at the South London Gallery, which had just opened when the COVID-19 crisis hit and forced uh, first the shutdown of cultural institutions and then the lockdown that we're, we're living in now. So I wondered if you could maybe tell our listeners what the show at the South London Gallery was, uh, what the experience of it shutting down due to the coronavirus epidemic was like, what it was like working with the institution on that, and how and when it might reopen. This show was a kind of a culmination of research I'd been doing for some time around kind of grieving culture that comes out of my Iranian heritage. You know, I've, I've got this kind of history of working with drinks as well, and uh, like the idea of libations, because on, on my mother's side, my family were drinks makers, in Iran and traditionally they used to serve these drinks in a kind of ceremonial ritualistic practice and um, around kind of like grieving ceremonies and um, occasions that were very like big religiously so I've kind of been exploring this strand um, further in terms of my work and often use drinks to kind of reference death or like this idea of libations and, and making them and things like that and with the show at the South London Gallery it's the culmination of a six-month residency, the postgraduate MA, which I did kind of allowed me to apply for this. Usually my work is quite site-specific. It just ends, like, I feel like I need something to respond to a lot of this. And so I just spent some time in, in, in the gallery and really learned about the history of the building being histor historically a fire station. And um, there was some kind of events locally, like the So Gardens Estate. There was a fire on there at Lacan House about 10 years ago. And also where I live in West London, like I live in the same 
social housing group as Grenfell Tower. And that was like a, an experience that affected me very personally. So all these things were kind of like swirling around in my head. And I wanted to make something that references that and bring some of these histories into light. But at the same time, allows it to be layered with this kind of drinks past that, that I'm still exploring in terms of the idea of libations and, and how to make a work that is participatory at the same time. And, and I, feel, I feel like there was like all these different ideas swirling in my head. But my, my actual initial idea that I had to screenshot this just to kind of like, I was just like shocked at how relevant it is now, but I actually wanted to make a ventilator machine, like a, like an ECMO life support machine that was filled with rose water. Uh, because that's one of the ingredients that's used in, in a lot of these ceremonies, especially like it's poured on graves and things like that. And I just wanted to make something of, of that kind. So I was just like, wow, this was the direction I was going in. But then in deciding to work with a site, I ended up creating like a sprinkler system. And the sprinkler system is made out of um, stainless steel piping, which is used in the drinks industry. But what it's filled with is rose water. And then there's a small cistern. Uh, like a pump that people can activate and get rose water dripping out of the different uh, sprinkler ends that are placed around the gallery, um, hanging down from the ceiling. And it kind of follows the architecture of the room and maps out the perimeter in a sense. So that's the kind of main aspect of the work that's um, there now. And then around that, I've kind of focused on the idea of the exits to the building and kind of like looking at this idea of the threshold of the gallery space and not just like who's allowed to enter those spaces, but I feel like there's a kind of idea of like, for me, this notion of like exiting is made to feel like a privilege nowadays. And that was in response to one of the statements where I heard Jacob Rees-Mogg on a radio interview talking about like, if you had common sense, you would have exited Grenfell while it was on fire and I was there that night trying to get my friend out of the building and other people that I knew in there. And there's no common sense in that situation because it's not a common situation. So they were just following what the fire brigade told them and that's what they were telling me as well. And I just felt like if Jacob Rees-Mogg is saying you should just go against the authority figures that are there to like protect you, what kind of a political message is that? does that mean we should go against him? Like, I just don't understand what he meant by that statement. And it just made me feel like, oh, maybe there's a different common sense if you have this level of privilege that other people don't have access to. And maybe that kind of says a lot about how they view the rest of society. So like this idea of exits was very heightened for me. One of the ways in which I implemented that in the work is by um, using these surface transducer speakers that vibrate different surfaces and kind of turned them into, into a speaker. So I took one of the, these kind of big doors which have the shutters and glass and stuck these speakers to different parts of it um, and activating the, those parts of the architecture that maintained this threshold. And the sounds being played through were all developed with um, some producers in New York who are Iranian and they also based their kind of sonic language upon those grieving ceremonies, which my family were... Um, serving drinks at. So we kind of put this kind of eulogies and, and poems and different kind of like sonic soundscapes that, that come from that tradition, but kind of un updated into more of a contemporary form. 
and yeah, played through these like shutters and the doors. It's quite hard to explain, but um, there's pictures on the website, so you can you can kind of see what, what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, like those are the main elements of the work, but like there's lots of little bits in and around it as well. What was the experience of the work closing due to the COVID nineteen epidemic? What was what was that like? In a in a weird way, it kind of like made sense. I mean, it's definitely. Um, you know, I was disappointed. Like I worked six months trying to develop the show, and and the main thing I was actually upset about um, not being able to do is the public program. There's like performances and and talks and things, and and like I was actually going to work with. There's like a children's project connected to South London Gallery called Art Block, and I was going to develop some ideas with, with the children there, and I, and I'd sort of like put a lot of these things until after the show is opened, so that I can focus on them. And that's kind of how I divided the work. And then I, was, I wasn't able to do that in the end. So that's kind of what I was most... Because I think public programs are really important to like contextualize a show. And, I, and, and to me, I, I saw it all as one thing. I, I never... I don't see it. I see like this is like even the work being interactive and people kind of pumping the, the, the structure. It's like it's constantly being activated in different ways. And, and it's just the conversation that's ongoing. So I'm kind of sad that like that conversation has to be I don't know, postponed or put on hold but then it kind of opens up different conversations and in a way like I said it, it made sense because the work is about like grief and death and this kind of liminal zone of like thresholds and borders and what they entail and I feel like we're in that kind of very indeterminate space at the moment so in a way it's like what we're going through now I, I try to make work that addresses this feeling in a particular space. And then now that feeling has been expanded to almost every space. So it's just a weird, almost like opening up of that conversation to the point where I'm like, I don't even know if this show is necessary anymore because everyone's feeling this now. This is kind of this weird mix. I mean, have you had contact with the South London Gallery? Is it likely? Oh, that- yeah when the lockdown ends and, you know, whenever the shutdown of the British sort of culture industry and cultural institutions yeah, ends, yeah, yeah. the show will reopen? And if so, do you think you yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. adapt it at all? I mean, this, this is a good question. I mean, in terms of the gallery, they have given me an assurance that the show will reopen, but we don't know under what conditions and how for how long, it, you know, it could just be a day or whatever. I don't know. But they they have been working very hard to try and move the program around and make sure that the, the show that is currently there does get some more time because you know it's already installed in it and everything else is tentative you, you, know, you can't even do any logistics so on on that front yeah there, there is decided it will reopen with the culture industry being in shutdown i mean that's just crazy because like literally everything that i had lined up has stopped and and i think that's the thing that i'm more confused about in terms of like now there seems to be almost this expectation that people can just pivot like onto a new way of working and 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 go into like online culture or whatever and it's just like I don't I don't really see that like I work with galleries I work with spaces because that's what I'm interested in but not necessarily even galleries like I work with people like my background I just said it's like a community work it's working in social projects that's my realm like if I wanted to be online I'd become a vlogger or something like that like like and and I think people that do that are very good at it and they're very invested in it and that you know they kind of like have skin in that game whereas 
with the current state of affairs with the culture industry, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, it's very hard. And I, and I think even, like I said, with the show itself, you know, I've only been in the space once or twice since the lockdown. And it just feels so different. And I know that so many things are going to feel different. And I don't know if I can show this work again in the way that it is once this lockdown ends. I don't know. I don't know any of these questions. That is so weird. Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us know anything. I mean, you know, I have certain writing projects where it's not 100% certain that the publishers that they're attached to are going to exist on the other side of it. I mean, I think they probably will, but we don't know for sure. Um, you know, obviously book sales have taken a real battering in this and independent bookshops and the whole kind of literary infrastructure yeah, yeah, yeah. in which I work is mm-hmm. very much under threat, but it's really hard to know. I mean, also the um, the teaching I do to support my creative practice yeah, yeah. is already quite precarious. Who knows if that's going to continue to be in place on the other side of this. I already know several people in academia who've lost jobs and, you know, maybe yeah. have not having like annual contracts renewed because mm. universities are really not expecting many people to enrol for the forthcoming academic year. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, universities have been trying to move a lot of teaching online but also doing things like moving degree shows online i know that the royal college of art for example a lot of the students there are not very happy about it a lot of them similar reasons that you've just you've just outlined that you know their work just doesn't work on in an online context and that's not what they want to do with it and it's not what their work is designed to do and some of them have been able to pivot and some of them can't I mean, I think it'd be interesting from here to um, talk about your experience of the Diaspora Pavilion at the Venice Biennale mm. in 2017. I was actually at Venice that year, and, and sadly I went on, um, I think it was a Tuesday or Wednesday, but it was one, one day of the week where that pavilion wasn't open, so sadly I, um, I wasn't able to see the work. But um, mm. you were one of, I think, was it 17 or 19 um, artists involved in the exhibition? So, yeah, so the, maybe yeah. you could sort of tell us about the the concept, you know, what your contribution was, and some of the other artists who were involved, and how you felt about how the pavilion was was covered in the media. Yeah, sure. In terms of the number of artists involved, it might be good to clarify that like, there were like nine of us who were selected from the open call, and um, then there were ten artists who were on board in a kind of mentor capacity. They were more established. People like Isaac Julian and Yinka Shonimba, Hugh Locke, for example, who were kind of mentoring us. But, and then we ended up kind of showing together. To be honest, this, this is kind of where my entry into the art world begins. Like, I don't, I don't really have a history of working with any arts institutions um, prior to this. As has been talked about, like, I was, in, I was doing community projects. Prior to that, I was studying medicine. That was a, this was a kind of point of transition where whilst I was doing these community projects, I had just developed this discourse talking about something which I refer to as neo-diaspora. And it was just, it, that was just a kind of term I made without a strict definition, but it was, it was trying to like just separate the experience of myself and the kind of communities that I was working with from other narratives that existed out there around migration or around, I don't know, coming from Muslim heritage or these kind of things. And everyone just kind of was, had this very reductive way of referring to, to what we were doing or who we were. And, and, you know, the war on terror was kind of going on for the last 15 years or so before that. So there was just like all this kind of rhetoric around like my subjectivity, whatever that means. And I just wanted to create something that 
pushed it away, but also opened it up into a broader conversation. And by talking about neo-diaspora, it was like, yeah, I could talk about migration, but then I could also talk about technology. And I can also talk about how like hipsters co-opt culture and stuff like this and how it's like, like we're in this different milieu now. And, and that kind of came from reading things like Zygmunt Bauman's books, like liquid modernity and stuff like that, and how just everything's kind of mixed up and in flux. Also, like yes, this idea of diaspora is really outdated to me. That there is no homeland and this kind of foreign place, like this very binary view of what it means to be a migrant. Like especially like living online nowadays, like you exposed to so much difference and being in these kind of globalized scenarios. So like for me, that was the kind of ideas I was developing in my projects. And then um, someone came across it and they were like, "Oh, you should apply for this pavilion in Venice." And I was like, that doesn't really address me. It has not, I have nothing to do with the art world. Like it's, it's kind of, it's nice that they're doing that, but I'm developing something that's going further than this. Like just in terms of ideas, like um, from what I could tell. But um, they managed to convince me to apply. And um, I put it in last minute and I was selected. And I didn't really know what this entails. You know, they, they just kind of, I went to an event and there was lots of people there. Then I ended up going to Venice and, there was this pavilion in this beautiful palazzo and with this kind of neo-baroque furniture and all this like very lavish and they were like yeah like respond to this so you know that's kind of maybe that's why i work in a site specific way because my first thing was that like that was my experience so yeah this i ended up making a project that kind of referenced the domestic nature of what it means to be in a palazzo with these ideas that i was exploring around technology images and um like how that is affecting me on a personal level and i made this installation in the dining room using photography film and um, some sculptural work that i had developed beforehand in a kind of different capacity where i was working more in that craft and um like with stone and, and carving yeah i did that but then the, the main thing that actually came into that space were these drinks that i made i made 500 drinks with a company that was based in Hackney, like this drink startup, it was a kind of like a, a, a brewery that like focusing on sodas and soft drinks and shandies. And so we were kind of brewing beer and, and different lemonades and things like that and then mixing them up. So I made a drink called Shandy Saffron, which didn't have any saffron on it. And the label was a Facebook post about me, about a documentary about hipsters in which I featured because I was working in Hackney at the time that the BBC made. And so it was just weird, this weird mashup of kind of technological and cultural paradigms kind of laid on top of each other. And I presented it around this idea of this drink that was served at the opening and was available throughout the course of the pavilion and people could drink it. And it was, it was actually a bergamot shandy that tasted really nice. That's kind of an overview of what what, happened, what I did there. The idea of the show, I think, was 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 like an interesting intervention into that. That was very specific around the idea of Venice having these national pavilions, and there not being something that addresses this notion of diaspora or migration. And I think different artists addressed it in different ways, which people like Paul Maheke, Larry Achiang, Libita Clayton, like we we all had our own way of referring to this to this idea in that particular context which i thought was quite interesting but at the same time i think the idea of like these grand group shows because it tries to create this grand narrative to place everything under it like a, a lot of the subtleties get lost like or a lot of a lot of things just, and, I, and I, I don't blame 
the kind of curators or the people that came up with the concept. But I think it's just how the art world functions at that level. There's almost no space for nuance. Everything has to be like readily digestible. So I think like I went in with a very critical mindset with like this energy to like have this very discursive exchange and kind of that's what like you know even making the drinks it was like for me to be able to serve them and stand and talk to people and trying to have these conversations but like I just realized that wasn't necessarily what that space is about uh, or like the whole festival as like yeah the way like the media was trying to push it and I remember like they filmed the BBC documentary and I, w- I was featured in that and the whole thing was just like trying to like promote how fun this experience is and how like how like wacky it is to be an artist and come out to Venice and talk to like collectors and stuff and I mean none of that was my concern you know like it's just I wasn't there for that I went there out of curiosity more than anything because I was just like all right well these guys are saying they're talking about the same things that I'm talking about let's see what it looks like when it's over here I, I do have an interest in art like I was you know working in a cultural capacity so I thought yeah let's see if we can take this to the next level but now I think there's a lot of a lot of critiques that I think it's just to do with like how maybe maybe it's my experience of like a Western or European centric art system engages with narratives around like diversity, otherness and whatever and like how, how it tries to like herald certain projects as like these like bastions of I don't know, visibility or um, exposure. For, for, for something and, and, and I don't think that's very helpful and I, and I think that like all it does really is create this kind of like plane of tolerance and like there's people like Sarat Maharaj who I, who I read afterwards that like really um, talk about that in a very clear way and, and it's just like creating proliferations of the same kind of difference and not a genuine diversity what I felt and then kind of I try to address that in subsequent projects but yeah like I, I think I, for me, I just think the whole Venice thing was just a weird way for me to like get established in the art world. But it's not like I don't ever think it's it's that relevant to me. Yeah, I mean, certainly for lots of artists, of course, exhibiting at the Venice Biennale would be something that they work towards for an awfully long time. You know, through kind of studying at art institutions and then having a long artistic career of group shows and solo solo exhibitions and for Mm. you to effectively begin your art career or a certain type of art career at the Venice Biennale must have given you probably an even stronger outsider perspective than than almost anybody else yeah I really felt that I really felt I was an outsider and and I really felt like I was almost like um like I was in a learning mode I think about algorithms a lot and and like how like an AI has this like training period where you just feed it with information and it has to work out what's significant. And I, re- I really felt like I was in that kind of a state where I was just like listening out and talking to people. Yeah, and, and I think that's like it was more about the people that I met there that made me want to pursue an artistic um, path more seriously. It was like, but like people, like I said, like Bulma Hecker and obviously like Khadija say. Is, is a known um, artist from that pavilion who I became very good friends with. And, she, you know, she lived in Grenfell Tower, passed away after the pavilion. But, um, but, like, we were neighbours, essentially, and we used to, like, talk a lot. And it was, like, those kind of interactions were actually what made me think, nah, you know what, this is what I'm interested in. It's, like, these more personal relationships. And 
if this big structure has to take place for me to like come across that then uh, like I'll just pursue that part of it because that's what I'm interested in but um yeah this structure kind of just allows me to now go forward and say like have a ticket to engage with other arts ventures essentially that, like that's how I saw it yeah, I mean, I'd like to to move from there to sort of talking about your your background and the path you took into into making art before you came to Venice. Um, yeah. You know, you've talked to us where about your experiences with religion at university in the in the two thousands, and we've already mentioned the the war on terror and the you know intellectual yeah, yeah, yeah. paradigm, the political paradigm that that brought about. So maybe we could talk about uh, your experience at university in the 2000s and how you studied medicine before moving into art. You know, growing up, I, I like I'm from I'm from a migrant background. Like I, I lost both my parents when I was quite young. And so like by the age of 16, I was looking after like my younger brother as well, who had multiple physical and um, learning disabilities. I just wanted to get a stable job that also allowed me to look after him to an extent so like I just had this idea in my head that I have to become a doctor and my brother was much more interested in art and he kind of was pursuing that type of career we kind of split our uh, interests like I would do more practical things and then he would do that and then we kind of like benefit from both so uh, you know being being in this kind of fairly precarious situation and then trying to work hard to get yourself ahead or whatever it just like puts on this kind of pressure that you're just working and trying to understand what's going on so you don't have a lot of time to like indulge like curiosities and interests and things like that and for me when I got to uni there was these openings of like student societies and things like that and like I was part of that new labor generation where it was all about sending kids from state schools and social housing and kind of disadvantaged backgrounds into higher education so like suddenly there was just like like this influx of us in um, like red brick universities and you know i ended up at ucl the first year was like a disaster i didn't know what was going on like i didn't even know what a tutorial was i didn't know anything like i was just completely out of my depth i was like coming across a lot of people that i normally wouldn't meet like people from different social classes different kind of background so I feel like there was this almost like calibration phase that I had to go through for like a year or two before I could find my feet in that environment. And then I started to like thrive intellectually and I ended up doing really well in terms of like studying science and physiology, pharmacology, neuroscience, all these things. And, and it eventually culminated in me going into medicine. And during my brother got very sick and he passed away from a, a failed heart transplant so that kind of sent me into a bit of a spiral because my whole like reason for wanting to study medicine fell into question and I was like trying to figure out like why do I still want to do medicine and and this is all kind of in the early like this is around like 2008 2009 etc so the narrative around like the war on terror had built up so much that I felt like a social pariah. Like, I felt like I'm not meant to be in the society. Like, and a lot of the narrative, even in uni, was like, there were like Islamic societies and there would be, there would like be all these different groups. Like, the Muslim Brotherhood had networks in universities in the UK trying to recruit people, not in a kind of terror way, but just like kind of a fraternity. 
I remember walking around once with one of my medic friends and they were like, it's as if you're part of something like a fight club, you know, like there's this like underground network that you guys are um, involved in. And yeah, it's just, it was just like a really weird time to be in that environment. And everyone was kind of like policing each other. Like a lot of us were very um, preoccupied with religious observations. And, and it's funny because like none of us growing up ever felt like we were Muslim in that sense. I was Iranian. My next friend was Egyptian. Another guy might have been Turkish or whatever. But suddenly under this rhetoric, we all became identified as this one thing. And that forced us to kind of like look into that a bit more. So for me, when I was like trying to pursue medicine after my brother's passing, I felt like I was, I was dealing with a linguistic problem more than anything else. I felt like I was trying to solve the question, like, who are you? And I could just say, I'm a doctor. And then that kind of solves that question. And, and I lit, literally, when I realized that, I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't continue with medicine if that's why I'm doing it. That's a messed up thing. So in that process, I was active. I was, tr- I was in the student societies. I was hosting debates. I was hosting lectures, you know, flying over professors of Islamic theology from like American universities and whatever to like give expand like the ideas around the current state that we were in so I, I was just I was used to being quite active in, in that way but at the same time me and my friends just felt really um, out of sync with how we felt how kind of things were shaping up around us and and we felt like this narrative that we get and push like this clash of civilizations that, that book written by Samuel Huntington like where it pits like the rest of the world and like the West against Islam and this like um, kind of eschatological um, state of, of the end of the world. I was just like, what the hell is this? Like, how am I implicated in this narrative? So we just started discussing this stuff amongst ourselves, like me and my friends who were kind of at uni at the time. And one of us, his family, he, they owned the local fish and chip shop in Lambert Grove. And that would just became our natural point where we would meet up and we would just talk about this stuff and we were trying to like understand what, like what's going on. And this very naive way, we were like, well, if we can just like understand the entirety of Western civilization, philosophy, literature, art, and then kind of do the same on outside from whatever it is, this thing called the Islamic civilization, then we can just solve it. Like we'll find the synthesis and we'll solve all of this. Like we had these almost like grandiose sense of our capacities and so we were just kind of meeting up and talking about this stuff and 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 i think it's it's important to say like we weren't doing it in this kind of ironic sense of like we're in a chip shop talking about philosophy like it wasn't it was literally existential like we were trying to figure out what the fuck is going on why do we why are why are our friends dying like why are there people that we know from our area going and killing themselves like one guy we went to uni with ended up being the detroit bomber like this shit was real around us. So the consequence of that was we all switched disciplines. You know, I went into arts. Uh, my friend Emre, he went from a chemistry um, PhD in Cambridge and switched to like studying a PhD in philosophy. Another friend switched into counterterrorism and he now works for the UN advising governments. So like this was major. Like even another friend of mine from that era, like he became one of um, Corbyn's advisors like so like there's like a lot of us from this period of like questioning 
ended up like really making huge changes in in what we were doing with our lives that kind of led to lots of other projects that were building around like trying to work with these communities and whether it's like primarily religious or certain like uh, migrant populations but it was just like all cultural projects ultimately one of the um community spaces that um i helped to establish was called Rumi's cave and i, and I ran it for like a couple of years at, at like the startup phase when it was still trying to turn into something that could support itself and i was i was developing a lot of the programs there and working with people and trying to flesh out what is it that this like how has our subjectivity shifted in this time and how how do we translate like traditional things into this current state of affairs so that's when i got interested in like traditional art and i was i was learning like stonemasonry geometry ceramics calligraphy a lot of this stuff for like two three years and like one of my teachers is adam williamson who's like a very brilliant like craftsman you know he used to let me in his studio and he used to run little courses and and so like i, I got really into that but at the same time as all of this i was grieving the passing of my brother I couldn't really be in a medical environment anymore. Like I tried going back, but it was just too triggering to be in hospitals. So that kind of, that very craft-based, like tactile, working with my hands, the very kind of like process-driven idea of like creating geometric patterns and carving stone and, and these kind of very elaborate and beautiful designs that I was working on, they turned into a kind of a healing process without me even realizing. And I became really interested in that like how material and process and time can like really shift like internally, like your, your state of mind, but also just like everything changed. Like even how I spoke, so many things were changing in me. And I also started therapy at that time as well. So like these like radical openings in a way occurred and I felt like, okay, I can leave that kind of scientific side of me behind now. I'd spent like 10 years working towards becoming a, a doctor and I felt like no now this seems to be like more and more my path so I just tried to take what I was learning and extend it into this community space and ultimately I, I just ended up making safe spaces if like I, without going into detail specifically it's like I was, just, I was just very good at creating safe spaces but um once they kind of we're incubating this question of like neo diaspora and what is what are we doing and how do we adjust to like being from these heritage like traditional heritages current climate there there came the question of like well we have the safe space we spend some time in it what happens next like what happens when you outgrow the safe space and i think that became the question with which i entered like the arts with like at that kind of juncture yeah, and so going from from these safe spaces to a space mm. like Venice must have been an extraordinary jump. And I know you, um, off the back of the Venice Biennale, you uh, started studying a master's at Central St Martin's. So I wondered, yeah. wondered what maybe your experience of the art school was like, yeah. coming from the background that you come from. Yeah, like I said, um, I had been so preoccupied with this notion of like safe spaces. And then I ended up in Venice. And I think on the one hand, like I was looking for another space and that's why I was really open to going there. But um, I don't think like the arts is a safe space in any sense, really. Like I think I, I actually found it quite uh, 
almost like a violent experience. And, you know, from like there was parts of me that were seeking that. And like I was seeking to be disrupted, like art school so different to what I had studied before, like sciences and, you know, even the idea of a crit where people just stand around and kind of like talk about your work and, and kind of rip it apart. Like I really felt that like to be quite a helpful tool just to have in, in, in your life, like being able to just do that was a, re- a really good process. But I think coming from my kind of background, like I felt like I had, and being one of the very few people in St. Martin's from that kind of a subjectivity, like I, I didn't really come across anyone else with my entire experiences. So it makes it very hard to translate. Like I feel like I had to spend a lot of time just like translating what I'm trying to say or where I'm coming from or like the types of experiences I've had. And, you know, sometimes making work that references my past and then that kind of being seen as like, self-indulgent or you know it's just like it it doesn't allow a a way for like other people to enter the work or whatever it's like these kind of things started I started being told them and I thought to myself like this is really weird because like certain things about me is is specific like I can't change that so but then I'm using them in the same way that you would use like an anvil you know like or something like that you think is generic but maybe to you to me that's very specific to to your thing like yeah i remember like just hearing these things about like the particular and the universal and this and this this very western canon that i was interested in like i had been reading it you know i'd I'd read the european canon and you know i had been running these philosophy circles for years in the chip shop so we'd kind of read a lot of this stuff and i wanted to expand my learning on it And, and the course that i did there was a kind of combination of fine art and philosophy. So it had these two elements which which drew me in. I feel like there was just this suspicion around me a lot of the time in that environment. And 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 I just think it's like this is one observation where I felt like maybe in a science domain, as long as you can give results, you're sort of accepted. Like it doesn't matter who you are, like in a lab doesn't matter who you are in a, in a ward as long as your patients are getting better like doesn't matter like you, you, no one cares where you what your background is but like in a kind of cultural and humanities space like everything is very tacit like everything is very much about like oh what are you reading what's this it's all about like these kind of different rules come into play and I remember like being told don't read that book because that person doesn't know what they're talking about when it comes to Heidegger or something like this. And the last time I ever heard rhetoric like that was in like extremist religious circles where they were like, don't read that book because that's like wrong knowledge. It's not sanctified by our leader or whatever. And then I, so like for me, there was like I experienced a lot of these parallels between like arts environments and very conservative religious groups. And I thought there was like a lot of parallels and kind of how they function and, and this kind of need to exhibit virtue and to control who can speak and who can't speak. Like, cause the, the way I come across is like a cis male from a very heteronormative kind of background. Like I, I used to get accused of being macho, of thinking like I know everything of like being very confident to just talk and whatever. But it's like, I come from, a background where I've had a lot of trauma in my life. You know, I've grown up in very precarious circumstances, social housing, state school, like a lot of crazy stuff. 
and just growing up in London, there's no curiosity sometimes in those environments. And I had to spend the best part of 10 years running these little projects in philosophy groups or whatever to gain the confidence to speak and, and go to therapy for 10 years even to like be able to talk about certain things that I feel and whatnot. And so like to end up in an environment where someone just looks at you and is like, you're macho, don't talk, let her talk or let that other person talk. It's just like, what the hell? Like, this isn't a helpful environment to develop ideas in. Uh, and especially when you're talking about diversity and difference and whatnot. Yeah, I, I just felt like there is a problem, I feel, with genuine diversity and difference within arts um, spaces. And the usual way that it's dealt with is either they praise you so they just like let you do whatever you want because they don't really want to get involved so they'll just if you come out with something that feels that sounds bizarre they'll just be like look we don't know what that is but cool just do your thing it's great looks like you're doing something interesting or they'll try and civilize you and they'll try and teach you about their canon and their history and their artists and their traditions and their whatever so it's like these two extremes that i felt were always being pushed and i, I didn't really like any of them like I, I was i don't care for that i'm trying to work out something i don't know who to talk to about so yeah that, <laughs> that's kind of how i thought yeah and i know you've you've finished at central st martin's now obviously with the exhibition at south london gallery closing down due to the the lockdown around covid19 i know that a lot of your work relies very much on being part of small and or large communities but very community-based work you and i have talked about art and artists being a, a kind of research and development wing of neoliberalism and i wondered if you had any thoughts about you know what might happen to the arts and perhaps arts universities uh which of course were already in a pretty precarious position we've we've talked quite a lot on suite 212 about the recent university college union strikes which i was involved with at the royal college of art so i wonder if you have any thoughts about you know what the coronavirus crisis might do to you know our sort of form of economic organization and the place that artists might take within that and you know it's interesting to think about what you talked about with the new labor period that was a kind of thing i learned from reading claire bishop's book artificial hells and she talked about how when new labor was developing the white paper which had the zero hours contract in it i think in the 90s that they um referenced artists as these kind of project-based workers who have this kind of ad hoc arrangement with their different um work engagements and they just kind of like do work when they can when they need to and then spend the rest of the time like focusing on their practice and whatnot and i was like i was like oh this is a great way of like living and we should like ex extend that luxury to like the rest of the society and so the zero hours became a thing and, and and when i read that i was just like yeah like a lot of this stuff that we do as artists or like even a lot of the theories that we're learning about like you know there's this kind of postmodern theories like rhizome simulacra and all this kind of like french post-structuralist thinking it's like things like uber and instagram and facebook have taken that logic way further than any artist ever did or any kind of like activist um so it's like these logics they sometimes i think they get they get too much focused on i don't think there's anything intrinsically helpful or disabling around this stuff like i think it's for us to decide what are we trying to do like what is it that which like as artists 
I'm in art because it, it affords me a level of complexity in terms of the way I work that other domains don't. And they don't allow me to address the things that I want to with the kind of nuanced layers where I can even introduce aspects of myself and my history amongst all these other considerations of like looking at art, but looking at social realities and structures and trying to make critiques, but at the same time being interested in like formalism and minimalism and these, how these various things come together, which is the kind of outcome of, of the show at South London. So it's like, I'm in art because I have this propensity within me to like answer these questions. And that's probably because I'm in a certain historical moment in relation to my, even my generation and not necessarily just my background. So I think the way things are going now is like, if someone like figures out a way to do degree shows online, then that's going to happen. You know, like a lot of people are going to like think, oh, that's a, that's a solution. But then what we lose is the ability for like more people to make physical work and like the serendipity of the real world and how like for me one of the benefits of being in the art world is that I was I was able to come across a lot of people that were very different to me whereas prior to that like when I was talking about the safe spaces and their limitations I think it was one of the things that frustrated me is I was just surrounded by people like myself all the time but and I think one of my concerns with like moving things online is that it's just going to take that echo chamber effect to another level in the arts because it's already kind of an echo chamber. And I think that's like, even when I was in my residency, I used to just sit above the gallery, looking out the window, looking at who goes into this gallery. I spent like six months doing that whilst I was developing the show because I was like, I'm not from an experience that like grew up visiting galleries. Like, I don't even know where a lot of the galleries are. Like I'm, I'm still working out a lot of this stuff as I go along. And when I used to say things like that, people used to be like, oh, you can't say that. Like, that's very embarrassing. Even when I was in Venice, I didn't know who Isaac Julian was. Like I'd heard of him, but I didn't know who he was like when I was talking to him. And someone was like, oh, that's really embarrassing that you don't know who he is. And I was just like, look, six months ago, I was doing charity work. Like I didn't give a crap about art. And now I'm here and I'm trying to learn. And ultimately, like I still think there is a value in that way that I've kind of existed in the arts in this kind of very serendipitous way that, you know, I meet people even like yourself and we chat and we're kind of like trying to develop these ideas. And I think by moving things online, it will really um, reduce the ability for these chance encounters to occur. And also there's just no way you can compete with like memes on Instagram, like like doing obscure art. How, how are you going to compete with i don't know um, netflix so i don't know may, maybe some people will become very big from it but um that just kind of like ordinary mundane quotidian type of experience of like something a bit strange or odd like i don't know because because the thing is the lo- logic of things online is like it's so streamlined like it doesn't like this it's very hard to express like complexity and nuance and and even it's funny like in um in silicon valley they refer to as face-to-face communication as like high bandwidth data transfer so like everything gets reduced to like this idea of data and information so it's like what we're doing now over the zoom thing this is like viewed in terms of bandwidth so you know we have limited exchange and i just think like by moving things online 
it really incorporates that logic of digital formats and data and information. And I feel like as artists, we're maybe one of the only sectors where we can actually exempt ourselves from that when we're making work. Like we, we can, I can be like, I have a great interest in technology, but none of my work's really about technology. I have a, a strong sense for like trying to preserve that, this domain that is outside of it. And I think with the current situation, if the film The Matrix was about to like become a reality, now's the time when everyone's at home and I can just give you this thing to plug into the back of your head. Great, we're all plugged in. Or even one of the other things I thought about is interesting. Francois Lyotard, he has this this section where he talks about the, the front cover of Leviathan and how you have the king looking over his kingdom and how this kind of vantage point of one person seeing the whole picture of their land and how when you go into a gallery, that kind of you as the viewer of a painting where you see the frames and the perimeter of this work of art, it kind of inculcates that type of mindset within the viewer that there is such an experience of viewing an entire picture so that when you are being viewed by the king, it's like you've already been indoctrinated that the king is holding this position because he has this perspective. So it makes you a subject. So actually the gallery is a tool of subjectification as well in in that sense. And I think with the online switch, one area where this could be reflected is now, like if you go on Twitter or um, Instagram, there's some people that have like a blue tick and they're like verified accounts and they have this special status. This is kind of incorporated a logic within us where when we're viewing this online content, we realize that there are some people that are verified there are some people that are validated and then there are other people that are non-verified. Like they're the new plebs or the, the subalterns, the unverifieds. And I think now when they're talking about bringing in these vaccinations or these kind of statuses of like who it can go out and who can't go out and it's going to happen through your phone apparently. So you get these kind of like biological passports or something. And it's just that to give you that sense of, okay, this person's verified. Like they're safe to go out. And I think so, like, even by going into the online space, there's like these new ways of, I don't know, like subjectification that um, the art world has been involved with in a long time. And I I think that would just become deeper entrenched. So, yeah, I don't know, like, there's a lot of ideas that come from from that kind of question. Yeah, I think we'll have to um, leave that question open to our audience now. But Abbas, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. We will be back with more of these sessions soon. I'm currently inviting another tranche of guests, so the pace of these shows may slow down for the next few weeks, not least because I've got to finish uh, my next book. But we will be back soon and we will continue to do these shows during the lockdown. So please follow us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. Find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet-212. Subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweet-212. Thank you for listening. Take care. See you soon. Goodbye.